Hello and welcome to Autonomous Cars with Mark Hogue, the number one result on Google for Autonomous Cars podcasts. I'm Mark Hogue, a California licensed attorney, a 2X startup founder, a UCLA Bruin with a background in engineering and an economics degree, and twice a week we'll be discussing the products, tech, law, policy, and societal impacts of autonomous cars as they bring about the greatest step change in humanity since the Industrial Revolution. Before we get started today, I would like to share with you a few words I recorded yesterday with respect to the people of France about yesterday's shocking, horrific burning of Notre-Dame. For the French, losing Notre-Dame would be like losing the White House or the U.S. Capitol here. It isn't just a cultural icon admired by humanity around the world. It's a physical manifestation of the very fabric of France and all her history. Pour les Français... Perdre Notre-Dame, c'est comme perdre le White House ou le U.S. Capitol. C'est pas simplement une icône culturelle qui est admirée par humanité autour du monde. C'est une manifestation physique du tissu vrai de la France et toute sa histoire. Vive la France Today, Tuesday, the 16th of April, 2019, this is episode 98, and I'm thrilled to introduce you today to Dr. Jeff Everson, effectively one of the earliest founders of ADAS, that's Automated Driver Assistance Systems. So really a tremendous honor and privilege to have Jeff with us today. So um, as always, I'd like to hand it over to him to share with you his incredibly fascinating and varied background, and uh, hopefully you're sitting comfortably because the next 40 minutes with Dr. Everson begins now. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Well, Jeff, I should say Dr. Everson, thank you so much for joining us today. Obviously, it's a huge honor to have you join us uh, on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So obviously, um, I think we should probably dive in and get started. Um, as we were joking, getting acquainted with one another, we had such a fantastic preliminary chat last week. We <laughs> probably should have made that at least part of this official recording. But um, why don't we dive in and get started with a bit of your admittedly fascinating background, and then uh, we've got a lot of cool things to discuss. Okay. Um, I've been involved with driver assistance systems for most of the 1990s and into the 2000s. In the 1990s, I worked, I was a senior scientist working at Battelle Memorial Institute. And at that time, I was involved with uh, two projects uh, involved as a principal investigator for 
uh, with two driver assistance assistance system projects uh, that were funded by the Department of U.S. Department of Transportation. One had to do with runoff road collision avoidance, and I was a subcontractor at Carnegie Carnegie Mellon Robotics Lab. This is funded by NHTSA, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And also in the same period, I was involved with intersection crash avoidance, again funded by NHTSA. And I was a subcontractor to CalSpan. They're located out, they were located out in uh, Buffalo, New York. So those are the two major programs that I was in which I was involved. And after the 1990s and the 2000s, I worked for a company called Foster Miller. They're located in Waltham, Massachusetts, about 10 miles west of Boston. And my major project there, well, I had a few of them, but one of them had to do with collision warnings for inner city transit buses. That was funded by the Federal Transit Administration. And I was a subcontractor at the University of California, Berkeley. And that was a challenging pro project given that buses operate. We, we work closely with the New York City Transit and uh, that had to do, we use a driver training simulator. We tested out various warning algorithms, algorithm uh, warning modalities like uh, vision, audio, and haptic. Haptic meaning something vibrates. So if you saw something coming at you from the, from the left and the left half of your driver's seat would vibrate, that sort of thing. So we tested out various uh, warning modalities and timing because too, too, early, too early or too late just doesn't help. So that was it. So we worked very close with the New York Transit Authority and used their driver training simulator and for the uh, uh, runoff for the uh, runoff road and intersection crash warning systems. Uh, got involved in a number of technologies. They took a very close look at onboard vehicle sensors, uh, lidar, radar, infrared, and so on. And for the runoff road computer simulation, that involved uh, well computer simulation. We had an accurate model of a Ford Taurus. We modeled the driver input, the steering throttle and brakes. We had an accurate geometry model. So we did, the idea was to determine which was better, the runoff road system in the vehicle or those serrated edges at the side of the highway. So that was an interesting project. And also I was involved with the um, weather effects uh, on sensor performance, you know, if, if it's cloudy or if it's uh, foggy or something like that, how well does your sensor work in terms of signal to noise ratio and that sort of thing. And that's pretty much my experience with driver assistance systems. And then I got off into other things like, um, well, at one point I was involved with anti-submarine warfare work, uh, electromagnetic signaling, signal oh. calculations and all <laughs> to discover the presence of a huge metallic object at depth, as they say. And then I was also active with the uh, renewable energy systems like wind and solar. And a couple of years ago, I just, I, I discovered that uh, autonomous vehicles is a real hot topic. I said, wow, I, I think I need to get back into this. So I've been involved pretty, uh, very uh, uh, consistently with in that area ever since. And wow. Well, so, so you're sorry, please. Academic background, I have a PhD in physics from Boston College. Uh, my primary core concentration was in solid state physics, and my thesis was a metallurgy topic. I haven't done a thing in it since. It was basically <laughs> my ticket out of school. After all, you have to show your thesis committee something. So 
<laughs> wow. All right. So, so is it safe to say then that you're sort of the godfather of ADAS? Uh, kind of, kind of cast me in an older, old, older demographic, but uh, I, when I first started with this, uh, I, I, I mean that in an affectionate, uh, impressive sort of way, commanding all the respect it deserves. Because I mean, it sounds like a lot of this work, a lot of the research, this really kind of predates much of what I think. Well, it certainly predates the first experiences many of us had with any sort of ADAS in any of our cars, right? I mean, yeah. the first time I ever experienced, for example, I guess a vehicle with automatic emergency braking must have been, I think it was a BMW back in, a 3 Series back in, I want to say 2006, 2007? Uh-huh. And it sounds like a lot of this work, a lot of this research certainly predates that by at least a decade. I got started in the 1990s, as I said, and a lot of that involved crash analysis and what type right. of sensor systems would best help to avoid that sort of thing. Then we got involved with human factors as well. I should also point out that in the 1990s, when I was a subcontractor to Carnegie Mellon, my uh, boss, uh, Professor Dean Parmalou, and a few of his graduate students put together a van that pretty much well, all equipped with all kinds of sensors. And back then, everything was large. Uh, they had a three and a half kilowatt power supply to keep it keep it moving, and mm. essentially drove itself across country about ninety eight percent of the time. There was always uh, a driver behind the wheel just in case. And there are a few instances when the system decided it wanted to take an exit it wasn't supposed to use. So. But uh, that was quite successful, and that was back in the uh, 1995 program, is hmm. called and, and titled "No Hands Across America." And also at the same time in Europe, there was the Prometheus program, where similar work was ongoing. Ah, uh, yeah. Was this? Was this? So I think we touched on this briefly during our call last week, right? Was this the? Uh, I think I'd mentioned to you I'd seen a video from the mid '90s, an old Mercedes, I think an E Class outfitted with some sort of really impressive tech for the 90s, effectively doing autonomous driving on freeways through France. Yeah, it goes back that far. And in fact, in those days, the Germans developed an image processing system that could read German road signs. It's road signs, and there's about several dozen of them. And then all mm. of a sudden, GPS came along. So you didn't need that technology. So this is an example mm. of where... Uh, a, a disruptive technology came along and, and it basically made the other, uh, you didn't need what was done, accomplished previously. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned to me that there's three kind of overarching areas that you like to focus on or that, or at least that you find the most interesting. Can you kind of, I guess, enumerate those, each of those three at sort of a high level. I think it'd be kind of neat to dive into those one by one. Sure. Uh, the first one, as a physicist, I look for uh, topics that need to be solved. Um, otherwise, you're not going to achieve full commercial deployment status. Um, the topics, uh, the issues are number one, are autonomous vehicles actually safer than manually driven vehicles? That is the big question. And I don't know that anybody has correctly calculated that. Recently, I came up with a paper that uh, purported to do that. The second issue is transition from autonomous to manual driving. And you, you just have to believe that you know your, your computer on wheels sooner or later will have a hardware malfunction. A, a software bug will make it make its presence known. 
or you'll get hacked. So hopefully the, the system would have to give you an announcement and say, hey, you take over. I'm, I'm in over my head. So I'm a, I'm a, that, that, that's a huge problem. We can get into a bit more detail on that. Mm -hmm. And the third issue has to do with uh, cybersecurity and hacking. As I said, it's a computer on wheels and it can and will be hacked in, in, in many instances. It hasn't happened yet because you don't have that many AVs on the road. But sooner or later, it's going to happen. I can give you some detail mm -hmm. on that if you want. Interesting. All right. Well, um, I guess we'll just take it from the first then, right? So this notion of sharing roads, non-autonomous vehicles with autonomous vehicles. Um, just very quickly before I forget, um, it's pretty coincidental timing. Just yesterday, you may have heard Tesla released its voluntary its voluntary safety report with respect to accident rate of autopilot. Now, before even mentioning the numbers, I'll just cut to the chase. Yes, it's still better than human-driven vehicles. Uh but the rates uh, got worse over time rather than better over time. But it's still better than humans. However, as many people are quick to point out, this data is a bit skewed, not least of which because autopilot tends to be used uh, primarily on freeways rather than city streets. But that's perhaps another discussion for, you know, in a few moments. Um, but yeah, so let's dive into the first, the first uh, issue you mentioned. I mean, sharing roads with pedestrians, right? So this is going to be quite a transition this, this period of time, right? All right, just... As the first issue I mentioned has to do with the fundamental uh, question, are autonomous vehicles safer than manually driven vehicles? Then you might follow up with the question, well, if they're not safer, then what? Well, I guess the end game is they must be safer or we wouldn't even be pursuing this in the first place, right? But I don't, from everything I've read, I don't know. I don't think you know that for a fact that they are safer. It's, it's assumed that they're safer because they don't have human frailties and they, they don't suffer from uh, oh, being mm -hmm. tired or intoxicated or things like that. But they can go wrong for other reasons. So the thing is, how do you determine whether or not the AV is safer than a manually driven vehicle? So what I've done in my eight-page calculation is to just take a look at, and I'll be brief about this, is to look at a fleet of manually driven vehicles and you find out how many of them, how many, how many such vehicles got into got involved with a crash, like property damage only. Then you divide out by the total number of vehicles on the road at that time. So you have the ratio of uh, crashes divided by total number of vehicles. And that's that's a basically a probability. It's a dimensionless probability. And so you take a look at that ratio, and then you do the same thing for autonomous vehicles. Take the ratio of the vehicles, the AVs that were involved in a property damage only crash and divide out by the total number of vehicles. So you have the AV probability and you have the manually driven vehicle probability. You compare the two. And if the AV probability is for a crash is less than the probability for a manually driven vehicle, you say, aha. The uh, AV is safer. So this is the ratio. You're just basically comparing sure. the ratios of two problems. It's basically what it comes down to. But you have to do this for three different cases. One for the first one I mentioned was property damage only. The second one was for injury. And the third one is fatalities. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that any, well, first of all, you don't have the number of vehicles available to do this yet. I think you, well, you probably do in the case of manually driven vehicles. But it turns out if a property damage only a greater need, oh, I'm just off the top of my head, I don't remember exactly what it was, but say something in the order of 10,000 such vehicles. However, 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is possible to have such a number of AVs available when they start getting produced in larger quantities. And, and the uh, last Congress, there was there were bills in both the Senate and the House that said, okay, you could start producing AVs at the rate of 80,000 per year per manufacturer. So when you get up to that level, you'll have enough vehicles to take care of the analysis for property damage only. But it turns out that for injuries uh, and fatalities, you need even more vehicles. So it's not entirely clear, first of all, whether or not you're going to have enough vehicles for those two types of crashes. I think you can with property, PDO crashes, property damage only, but not necessarily with the others. The other, the other, well, a whole bunch of issues here, but one, who is going to gather up all of that data and keep track of it? It's a huge administrative overload. And I don't know that NHTSA has the capability to do that right now. The last time I checked, they did not have an administrator. So exactly who does this work and acts as an honest broker is kind of up in the air. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, there's also the issue now that it seems all the reporting is, first of all, permissive reporting. It's not mandated, right? And second of all, it's self-reported. So I think, well, then maybe let's actually go back to that thing I just mentioned a moment ago, the the statement that Tesla released yesterday. Um, I, I guess your point is, even if they're able to produce some math that shows some result, it's not really that significant. Is that, is that your concern? Because they're saying that for every yeah. 2.87 million miles driven in which drivers had uh, autopilot engaged, there was one accident uh, compared to those driving without autopilot. There was an accident every 1.76 million miles. Well, did they explain whether or not that was enough mileage? Um. Yeah, well, it doesn't seem, well, don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, they did say by comparison, however, that NHTSA's most recent data shows in the U.S. there's an automobile crash every 436,000 miles. So it seems like you need uh-huh. something at least greater than that number of miles at a bare minimum. That would be like the lower bound, I suppose. I can send you a, did I send you a copy of my paper? You know, I was actually just looking at it, I, or looking for it, rather. I, I know that you had said you were going to send it, and now I'm not seeing it in the email thread. I'm sorry, did you say you I, I No, I do not have it here. Okay, I'll, when this is over, I'll send right, it cool. to you. you know, when you do the statistical analysis, you'll find out that you need a large number of vehicles in both types of fleets, AVs and uh, manually driven uh, cars. That's because the probabilities of these crashes is relatively low. So is that those probabilities become smaller, the number of Vehicles in uh, both fleets becomes larger in order to have a discernible uh, detection probability of noticing with uh, with a whether there's a significant dif- statistical difference between the probabilities. Sure. That's really what it comes down. It's, it's statistics. Yep. yep. Got it. All right. Well, so what's the second area then? That's the big challenge here. Second one is the transition from autonomous operation to right. That's the one I flipped around at the beginning here. Okay, got it. So, so this is a very weird interim state, right? 
Yeah, what happens is I'm aware of three driver training simulator experiments. I mentioned the I reference these on my website, and they were done a few years ago. Basically, what happens is you uh, have a uh, high fidelity driver driving simulator. It looks like a real vehicle, moving base, noise, the whole thing, and maybe a 300 300 degree wrap around screen so you can see where you're going. And so what they do is they typically put a driving participant in behind the wheel and they start to start off in autonomous mode and they have an eye tracking camera to follow the eyeball motion. And when the driver's looking sufficiently, you know, semi-comatose, just to put it in the <laughs> term, then this person gets the uh, signal, okay, you take over the driving. And in three driver training simulator experiments, three different papers, it takes about 20 to 30 seconds to regain the full control of the vehicle. That's a huge amount of time, which all kinds of disastrous things could happen in a, uh, in, in, in a highway environment. Right, I'm familiar with this study, yeah. And the problem is when you're in autonomous mode, you're, the mental the demands on your cognitive processing is slight. So you get into a, a state of boredom, which leads to a state of hypovigilance. And it just takes a long time to pull out of it. So I actually talked about this in the last episode I just published, this this notion of that this interim state of autonomy could indeed be potentially more dangerous. And my example on a personal anecdote sort of level was driving back home for an hour around 11 o'clock at night with my wife. And I was just thinking, gosh, if this were a Tesla with autopilot, I can see how one might be a bit more careless and one could potentially yeah. find it more easy to fall asleep because they're less involved. Right. Um, as I also mentioned, I had this, you know, to the point of safety, there's a big thing now going around saying, Hey, if you want to make cars safer, bring back the manual transmission. And then that reminded me of my, I had an econ professor at UCLA who used to say, if you wanted a really safe car, get rid of the seat belts, get rid of the airbags, just put a giant metal spike in the center of the steering wheel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that might do the trick. So, I mean, so so where where is the middle ground here? How how do we? I mean, so, so all right. So, what's your what do you suggest? How how do you properly, you know, make this transition work? Frankly, I don't know. Good answer. To be honest, you, I understand. If you look around on the internet, I think you'll find some research going on. You maybe some report re reports from the Transportation Research Board (TRB). It's a very very difficult problem because. For autonomous vehicle operation, say, hey, don't worry about the vehicle will take care of itself. And then uh, once in a while, it's not going to. And you're going to have to take over and you're not going to be able to handle it. Whereas, you know, you can't, whereas for, uh, without a with manual driving operation, you know, you have to be vigilant all the time and that gets stressful. So I don't know. I, I Frankly, I don't know. So one of the things that I've suggested is that rather than everybody trying to fast track to the finish line let's call that level five vehicles right so no steering wheel they can drive anywhere everywhere all the time all conditions rather than trying to get to that goal and i think you and i briefly discussed this in our call last week um i i had, I had asked you whether it made sense let's just sort of forget about that for now let's just focus on level four and embrace a geofenced reality for autonomous vehicles for the foreseeable future because in that situation then if indeed you had geofenced deployment of autonomous vehicles. So certain roads, certain lanes on freeways, autonomous vehicle only. Well, then suddenly that should completely, or at least mostly, negate yeah, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, start at, let's say, level three, level four, maybe level three, and then work that to some degree of perfection and then go on to four and maybe five. Right, but exactly. Five. I guess it's a non-solution. I'm suggesting don't even bother trying to solve that transition. Just avoid it entirely by having them effectively segregated on the roads. Yeah, I mean, there's just still a lot of research left to be done here. And, the, and another nagging question is, how safe does an AV have to be? I don't think anybody's determined. <laughs> so this is a funny thing. So I ran a I ran a survey on Twitter a few months ago, and if ever there was an example of how ward choice affects the outcome of a survey, this was surely it. And a few people called me out on it. I think I said something like, what would it take? How much safer would an AV need to be to a human driven car, human driven car uh, to be trusted blindly? And well, virtually, no, you know, the answer was sort of like, it's got to be perfect before you trust it blindly. And then I realized, okay, that language is too strong. How safe would it have to be for you to effectively, you know, be okay getting into it? I, I got rid of the blindly uh, qualifier, right? And generally, as I recall, most people were okay with it being at least as good as humans, if not better. I don't think there was an appreciably huge, um, nobody was really expecting perfection, just that indeed it's better than humans on average. Yeah, it's just for the amount of money you may have to buy for an AV, you know, how much better do you really, you know, there's a a cost factor. Well, so, right, but but autonomous vehicle futures presume... uh, no, you know, shifting away from this concept of private ownership. So, so the best studies that I've seen, maybe you're familiar with his research, Professor Sperling from UC Davis, right? So he, you know, he suggests that if you eventually have an autonomous electric vehicle future with car sharing, or as he says, pooling, then you'd effectively drive down the cost per passenger mile to just 10 cents. This contrasts quite nicely to an Uber or a Lyft, which is currently what, $2 per passenger mile or a privately owned vehicle, which tends to be around 50 cents per mile. Mm -hmm. So I think this concern about cost should effectively go out the window if you merge autonomous vehicles with car sharing and you totally dispense with the private ownership model entirely. Just stand out in front of your house with your cell phone and just summon one of them and off you go. It's sort of like Uber with a driver. Exactly. Precisely. uh, How safe do they have to be this... Yeah, it reminds me of my days in military sensors and, you know, uh, you figure out what what resolution do you need to detect, you know, some kind of enemy emplacement? What kind of signal noise ratio do you need? And what's the probability of detection need to be? And then you can work that, take it backwards and figure out, you know, the rest of the hardware and the software. So I should imagine you could do the same thing with an autonomous vehicle look and say, okay, it's going to be 10% better than humans. So that gives you some hint as to what your uh, probability is uh, for a crash that I talked about a few minutes ago and work backwards from there. But nobody has come up with any definitive requirement as to what how much better it needs to be. You know, this reminds me as an aside, um, I did an episode, uh, we had a guest on the show, uh, Blair Lacourte. He's the president of a of a company called AI, not AI as an in artificial intelligence, but the word AI. Um, and his background, I just thought of this because you mentioned you did work on sensors in the military. He also was involved very much in uh, military sensors and the work they're doing at AI is essentially merging data from both two-dimensional cameras and three-dimensional point clouds from LIDAR in an effect, or in effect to sort of mimic 
the um, visual cortex of the human brain gives sort of more intelligence to what the car is saying. I just, um, interesting. All right. So let's see. So what's the third big challenge then? Third one is cybersecurity and hacking. You may recall that in 2015, a Cherokee Jeep was hacked remotely. Yes, yes. 10 miles. And the function steering throttle maybe break and the windshield wipers and the radio were commandeered. And so I think it was Chrysler. That's a Chrysler product. They had to come up with to take care of it. And the thing is, as as the vehicles become more complex with more AV sub functions on them, driver assistance types things and so so forth, the so-called attack services surfaces increase. In other words, there'll be more ways to enter into the system to take control of the car. So that needs to be addressed. And I found out something rather interesting that's happening at the University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute, otherwise known as UMTRI. And in the last couple of years, they've been looking at trucks. And if I remember correctly, most, if not all, trucks use the same CAN bus. That's the computer area network. Mm-hmm. So the various subsystems within the truck can talk to one another. And once you physically figure out how, you know, you understand what these signals mean, once you've got that, then you can hack your way into that truck plus a whole bunch of other trucks because, you know, you solve the problem for one truck and then you basically have basically have entree into a whole bunch of other trucks and maybe some buses along along the line. Mm-hmm. So that hasn't become a problem yet, but it's certainly bound to where you can imagine that some truck owner uh, is gets a call from uh, some hacker and says, hey, uh, we just commandeered your vehicle with all its expensive cargo. And if you send us $10,000 in Bitcoin, we'll give you, we'll give you, you get your truck back. <laughs> so that's bound to happen. And there are a lot of people, some people look at a lot of, uh, a lot of it could be going on in cybersecurity, but I think it's kind of a moving target because, you know, as soon as, you know, something new comes on, then you, you maybe you can hack your way into that. So that, that that's a huge problem. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So um, to draw a parallel, as I often like to do to aviation, I mean, besides the fact that a plane tends to be seven miles above the earth traveling at 80% the speed of sound, are you familiar with any sort of preventative measures that aircraft have taken to avoid any potential uh hackery of sorts. I mean, I know that obviously all the, for example, all the the electronics and the passenger compartment have no connection whatsoever to the rest of the flight avionics, because of course they don't. Um, But do you know if they've ever, do you know of any sort of proactive measures that were built into the design of the aircraft to avoid the highly improbable attempt to hack into them? I'm not aware of the specifics, but I do understand that they have double and triple backup systems in case. Right. And so that's what I was exactly. And so I was, I was going to get to that as well. So, so this, this kind of goes back to what I've been saying, frankly, 
<laughs> over and over again lately, which is that I do think we'll eventually need some sort of an administration. I call it the FAVA, which is going to mandate everything about how these cars are uh, designed, built, and ultimately deployed. And I think absolutely one of these things will be to mandate triple and quadruple backups for all critical systems and indeed to ensure that um, that that if one system is, shall we say, commandeered, as it were, uh, it's not going to somehow enable access to other systems, right? So I, I think this will be absolutely necessary because you're right. These aren't flying seven miles above the earth, 80% the speed of sound. They're right here on the ground and they would be otherwise relatively easy targets. Yeah, on the ground, you have, as the military would say, a target-rich environment, whereas at the air, up in the air, you have uh, uh, considerably more reaction time. Well, right, that too. Space yeah. much further apart, but there's, there's a cost, you know, to have double and triple redundancy, that's going to be a cost factor, and I don't know that you could do that with a ground-based vehicle. Right, that's a good point. Um, okay, so so I think this cost issue may indeed eventually go back to a sharing model rather than ownership model and ultimately just going to come down perhaps to economies of scale right so i agree that's a really good point i hadn't even thought about that it's true if you have multiply redundant systems that will obviously drive up the cost a lot but it was a study that came out true i think in 2012 um it's the earth institute at columbia university and they took a look at Ann Arbor and they did a computer simulation. They noted that Ann Arbor has a population of about 200,000. And in any given workday, they boil it down to about 120,000 automobile vehicles that need to go to work, school and shopping and all that sort of thing. So basically what they did was they set up, uh, they said, to, okay, suppose we have an autonomous vehicle it could be electrically powered. And let's set it up so if you're standing out in the curbside and you summon one of these vehicles, then it will take no more than, say, two or three minutes to reach you. So it's basically an, it was basically an Uber operation without the driver. Mm -hmm. And so you have a lot of these AVs, uh, Uber-type vehicles cruising around, and the system would figure out which one is closest to you and select that one to go pick you up. And the neat thing was that they reduced 120,000 vehicles down to, let's say, roughly 20,000 vehicles mm -hmm. to achieve the same origin destination requirements for everybody out in the road going someplace. Yeah, well, that's the thing, right, is as long as they're programmed to be more efficient and to never sit around empty. I mean, I can imagine, um, I always hate to use the word tax, but certainly you're going to have to have an empty vehicle tax. I mean, we can't allow these views actually in your neighborhood of Boston, right? The, uh, they did this study that said that demonstrated that if we didn't move to an efficient sharing model, autonomous vehicles would actually increase traffic and travel times by something like 5.6%, I guess. Right. I um, came across another paper that pointed out, I forget the name of the paper, but I could find it for you if you wanted. That is the, did some studies using a race, a, a traffic uh, um, a test track, uh, one in the form of a circle, another one of, in a figure eight, and they had a bunch of vehicles on an equally spaced uh, at the outset with humans driving them, and it didn't take too long for congestion to start just because of such variation in driving from one person to the next. So what they did to alleviate this problem was to insert an autonomous vehicle and it was programmed to go at a certain speed. So it basically became the lead vehicle 
and everybody everybody else followed suit and the congestion congestion disappeared. Mm, yes, I think this is relatively recent, right? Yes. The study. Yes. 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 That sounds familiar. I do remember reading that as well. Yeah. No, it's an interesting point. I mean, it, it certainly helps to alleviate or in, or entirely remove, I guess, the uh, this is called the it's like an accordion effect. Or I call it the spreadsheet effect, where you take a whole bunch of cells in a spreadsheet, you move them a little bit, and it makes the spreadsheet obviously massively larger. Yeah. <laughs> um, you see this all the time with human-driven cars. It's it's true. You might think um, that within the confines of a city environment on any given trap. Um, commuting day that maybe a few well-placed AVs could help alleviate a lot of traffic, but that remains to be seen because there's a difference between uh, downtown city driving with its complex set of roadways as in Boston versus right. uh, on, a, on, a, on a simulation track. So it's almost like having a, a pace car for the, <laughs> for the traffic. If you, get, if, you know, if you get all of this to work in Boston, you really, you made some progress. <laughs> I am pretty familiar with the, uh, shall we say, entertaining style of driving in Boston. <laughs> it's challenging. Yeah, it is that. Trust me. So I, I, I know I live here. <laughs> right. Well, as, as I as I've read, the the roads were paved sort of wherever the cows roamed back in the day, right? Pretty much. <laughs> That's, yeah. So, so okay. So there's there's obviously a lot of uncertainty. Um, I think what better note to kind of wrap this up here than the, you know, the three trillion dollar question, as they say. Uh, what's the timeline? What are you really anticipating? What's your gut tell you versus what you're seeing in the reports and the studies and your concerns? I mean, how soon? Like, wh where do you think we are on this timeline? Boy, that's hard to say because there's so many opinions on the subject, and there's so many. And it's the three safety issues that I just mentioned, and those right, those haven't been put to rest yet at all. The Uber is running some. Uh, I think they have some AV taxis in what Pittsburgh and a few other places, and mm -hmm. they've got some autonomous vehicle operation going on with autonomy. Well, and I I have to say, to be clear with respect to Uber in Pittsburgh, my understanding is following the tragic and fatal accident in Arizona. Their testing in Pittsburgh is limited only in certain, let's see, only during daytime and only essentially on sunny days, which I'm sure Pittsburgh's beautiful and I'd love to visit, but my understanding is that means they'll effectively be able to test like seven days a year. <laughs> yeah, it's something in that order. <laughs> so it's pretty limited now. But look, there's Waymo, obviously, right? So Waymo's doing a lot of real-world testing, finally. Right. And there's um, a company called Newtonomy. They're an MIT spinoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Running around Boston, taking a lot of data mm -hmm. in certain streets. And I think they have an operation in Singapore, maybe a, an AV bus, something like that. Hmm. Yeah, I believe you're right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of hype here, but there's a lot of real R&D that needs to be completed. How much, how much, how important do you think it is or isn't uh, the following two bits of technology, I, I guess, sort of ancillary technology? Um Eight, uh, eight, so-called HD mapping, right? Um, and I should say real-time HD maps and 5G. It's something that's been discussed quite a few times in the past with other guests on the show, and I've done a few episodes as well. There's, there seems to be a lot of opinion back and forth. Are you familiar with and have any opinion on real-time HD maps for autonomous cars uh, and 5G yeah, deployment? can be very important. The thing is you need maps down to the, I don't know, not quite the centimeter level. With current GPS, mm -hmm. you made what ten meters or something that to that level of accuracy. So, 
apparently the 5G would get you that kind of accuracy. There's also the question of uh, which do you prefer? The thing is, you need to have vehicle to vehicle and vehicle to infrastructure communication. And for the vehicles and infrastructure, there's dedicated short range communication. But since that's you know, likely to be overwhelmed by 5G if it appears when it appears on a massive scale. And the thing is, we I remember we had sub, it, it, it's probably more likely to have success if, if everything you need is in, is in the vehicle itself. Because I remember in, mm. in the 1990s and 2000s, we had this discussion with people and, uh, you know, there's infrastructure supports kind of like NHTSA versus Federal Highway Administration. And the thing is, it's just going to cost a lot of money that we don't have to equip the infrastructure with all kinds of sensors and all the rest of it to support dedicated short-range communication. And the thing is, you as, as the AVs come online, or level three, four, or five, or whatever it is, they still have to exist out there with all the other vehicles that aren't so equipped. And the last time I started figuring this, it takes about 15 to 20 years to totally change out the current fleet of vehicles that you now have. So you're going to have this mm-hmm. mixture uh, for quite some time. Interesting. So I guess to close out today, then, let's put a little plug for your website, shall we? Oh. Um, you do autonomous vehicle consulting now. Is that is that right? Yes. I work with the, I've been working with the uh, truck drivers. They're quite concerned about having the jobs disappear to a computer and wheels. I've been also working very closely with the Massachusetts Highway Department of Transportation. They've had an autonomous vehicle working group for quite some time, so I've been working with those folks. I've also um, got something in the pipeline with a German company that makes AVs, and I'm also working with the U.S. DOT. So, Very and cool. eventually, I'll, when AVs become more popular, I might be working with lawyers and insurance companies. Because if, if you're an if you're an insurer, yeah, how do you you know you don't have the actuarial data to support pricing the insurance? I would think. Yeah, I can imagine that's going to be a pretty big challenge, not just insofar as a shift of burden for the insurance companies, but you're right. Actually, <laughs> where do they start from when they have no data? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so they're kind of eyeballing it now at the moment, but you know, as AVs, uh, level three, four, five become more popular, this will be more of a pressing issue with uh, insurance companies. And this goes right back to my paper that gives you an eye, gives you a method on calculating AV safety versus mechanical, the manually driven vehicle safety. Mm-hmm. So my website, mm-hmm. uh, which you mentioned it, thank you, is www.jheversonconsulting.com. Right. Very good. Well, obviously, Jeff, it's been a huge honor and privilege, and it's been a lot of fun having you on the show. So thank you so much, obviously, for making the time. And um yeah, what can I say? Real, real great to talk with yeah, you. Yeah, well, thank you very thank much. You very I much. enjoyed chatting with you, and uh, maybe we can do it again at some point. Absolutely. I look forward to right. it. Thanks very much. Take yeah. care. Bye-bye. Just a friendly reminder, don't forget to follow me on all social media at Autonomous Hogue. And if you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to leave it five stars on iTunes. Thanks so much. 
All right, well, that's a wrap for today. As a reminder, if you'd like to be a guest on the show or if you're a PR agency trying to book somebody for the show, please head over to markhogue.com or autonomoushogue.com. It's all the same. In the top right corner, you'll see a link to submit a guest booking request. So uh, please be sure to head over there. That's the only way I'll be considering guests for the show going forward. Thanks so much. And with that, enjoy the rest of your week. I'll see you back here on Friday. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.